It's Friday, June 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump warned that Iran made a very big mistake after the Iranian Revolutionary Guard shot down an American RQ-4A Global Hawk surveillance drone. Iran maintains that the drone crossed their airspace, but the U.S. says that is just not true. Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico, joins us for more on the drone shootdown and continued tensions with Iran. Next, in the aftermath of the shootings in Parkland last year, prosecutors around the country turned to a zero-tolerance policy when it came to students who made threats against the school. This even prompted one prosecutor in Texas to charge 216 students in three months. But now, some are moving away from that because they want to avoid overcharging students in cases that just don't turn out to be serious. Dan Frosch, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how priorities are changing. Finally, we speak to Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic, about the sperm donor who has met 17 of his kids. Tim Gullickson began donating sperm in 1989, and most of his kids are 18 to 25 years old now. They found him and other siblings through the donor sibling registry and DNA tests like 23andMe. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The U.S. Navy RQ-4 was flying over the Gulf of Oman and the Strait of Hormuz on a recent surveillance mission in international airspace in the vicinity of recent IRGC maritime attacks when it was shot down by an IRGC surface-to-air missile. This was an unprovoked attack. Joining us now is Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico. President Donald Trump warned that Iran made a very big mistake after its military claimed responsibility for shooting down an American drone. It was an RQ-4A Global Hawk. Iran said that it, the drone was flying over Iranian airspace. The Pentagon has said that it was in international waters at that point, but still, they shot it down. What else do we know about what happened? This is a very provocative act. It's a drone. There's no pilot in it. But it seems like the Iranians are inching up to the red line, if you will, right. to see how far they can push the United States. This comes to days after these two oil tankers were mined and damaged in the Gulf of Oman, not too far away. And so I think there's real concern that the Iranians feel like they have a free hand here. And the question is, at what point do they do something that really does force the United States to retaliate? The president also said that he found it hard to believe that this was intentional. It might have been somebody who was loose and stupid or just some type of off hand order, some type of mistake. The distinction in this, and even when Lieutenant General Joseph Guastella was making statements about this, he pinned this on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran. They kind of operate separate from the Iranian military. They get separate orders. They have their own ground, air, and naval divisions. They control the ballistic missile program for Iran. Who are these guys? Who is this group? Well, the IRGC basically answers directly to the Ayatollah. What the president is suggesting, and maybe he has real hard and fast information about some rogue faction or somebody operating without orders from the top, but he's giving voice to this idea that when you talk about Iran, quote unquote, you have to think about which Iran you're talking about, because there's the Iranian government, president, the foreign minister that sort of speak for the government, but then there's the religious leader, the Ayatollah, who sort of sits above it all and has the IRGC as his own personal Army, Navy, Air Force, paramilitary elite unit that operates 
not just in Iran, but all over the region. And the IRGC is operating in Iraq, Yemen, Syria, other places. But I think what's interesting to me is that the president's comments demonstrate the conflict, I think, in his own mind. And by that, I mean, clearly the Iranians are poking the bear trying to see how far they can push us. The president clearly understands that we need to do something about it. We can't just have the Iranians blowing up oil tankers, risking economic lifelines, shooting down our aircraft. But at the same time, this is a president who ran on extricating our military from the Middle East in these endless wars. In fact, he repeated that the other day. So I think he's very reluctant to get into a shooting war and wants to find another way out. But he also has advisors that are pressuring him, his national security advisor, the secretary of state who believe that we need to be tougher on Iran. And so he's got to balance the devils and the angels on his shoulders. He even answered questions to that because reporters were asking him if his advisors were pushing him toward war. And he said, no, they're not smart enough to answer that in the right way. But you're right. John Bolton has a history of being hawkish on Iran. The same thing with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. They want to exude this position of of strength and force. But even a lot of lawmakers, Senator Lindsey Graham, very forceful saying, hey, if they want something, they're going to get it and they're going to lose. There's a lot. Many lawmakers are kind of of that same thing. We have to be tough in Iran. But even Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she doesn't think the president wants a war with Iran and the American people have no appetite for that either. We still have a Iraq war hangover. We know how that thing turned out, and I think there's a deep reluctance in both parties. What's interesting is there are hawks in the president's own party, for sure, but they're kind of a minority these days. I mean, even Republicans are very wary about another open-ended military engagement in the Middle East. I mean, the Iran war, if it came to that, would make Iraq look like a sideshow. And so I don't think anybody on either side, the Iranians, the Americans, really want a major conflict here. But The bigger worry is that the more this goes on, the more the risk goes up that there could be a miscalculation, that things could spin out of control. If Iran shot down a surveillance plane with a crew of 10 Americans in it, we'd be hard pressed not to do something dramatic in retaliation. And then what does Iran do after that? I mean, Iran has proxies, militias terrorist groups all over the region that could wreak havoc. And so I think the administration, the president is trying to find a way to stand firm, not let these activities the Iranians are engaged in slip by, but at the same time, try to minimize getting sucked into a part of the world where we're already, quite frankly, pretty sucked into and are trying to figure out a way out, whether it's in Syria, Iraq, you name it. Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. They found that most of the cases involved first-time offenders. A majority of the cases involved 12, 13, and 14-year-olds. And there were a fair number of cases which they ended up reducing charges on or dropping charges altogether because the threats were really not that serious. Joining us now is Dan Frosch, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. After the Parkland shooting happened last year on February 14th, a lot of things changed in people's minds and the way people kind of approached how to handle threats at schools. Specifically, prosecutors around the country started this zero tolerance approach to students that were making threats against schools. They were hoping to keep their communities from suffering some type of similar fate, you know. If we see a threat, we're going to go for it and hopefully mitigate any of this stuff. But after that happened, there was just 
huge numbers being put up. I think there was one prosecutor in particular that charged 216 kids in just a few months after that happened. Tell us a little bit about that. What we saw after Parkland was a nationwide fear on the part of school officials and law enforcement about preventing the next school shooter. In Parkland, if you remember, this was a case where the individual who opened fire on the school had exhibited warning signs for some time leading up to the shooting. And school officials, prosecutors, law enforcement wanted to avoid a repeat of that. And so there was this rush to basically deal with any semblance of a school threat in as aggressive a manner as possible. It was, by and large, a well-intentioned effort to, to sort of prevent that a repeat of, of what we saw in Parkland. But in, certainly in the case of Harris County, uh, which is one of the largest school districts and, and largest law enforcement jurisdictions in the country, this is an area in Texas that includes Houston, the prosecutors decided after the school year to go back and look at the unprecedented number of young people they had charged for making school threats. So when they went back and they examined those cases, what did they find out? They found that a lot of these kids were 90% at least were first time offenders and a lot of them were really young in some cases. When the head of Harris County's Juvenile Division, John Jordan, went back and did an analytical examination of the cases that his office had prosecuted, they found a number of interesting things. They found that most of the cases involved first-time offenders. A majority of the cases involved 12, 13, and 14-year-olds. And there were a fair number of cases which they ended up reducing charges on or dropping charges altogether because they had realized upon further investigation that the threats were really not that serious. So they decided in retrospect that this was perhaps not the smartest way for them to be deploying resources and and, and looking to prevent the serious school shooter who really intends to do harm as opposed to some 12 and 13 year old who maybe might blurt out something stupid or post something on social media as a joke because they think it's funny and suddenly end up getting charged with a felony, which is not what these prosecutors sort of intended to do. At least some of them, when they proclaimed that they were going to be enacting this zero tolerance policy. Right. What were some of the punishments that were involved with students that were charged, though? You see a range of punishments in these cases, right? You see in the most serious cases, you, you know, a kid can get locked up in juvenile detention. In less serious cases, there can be probation or what's known as deferred prosecution, where prosecutors will say, look, stay out of trouble for six months and we'll drop the charges. But even in those cases, students are often arrested, put in handcuffs, and may spend an initial day, couple days, even longer in some sort of lockup, juvenile lockup facility while the case is being processed and run through the court system. In Harris County, the juvenile prosecutors decided that this was really not a good way to deal with the issue in that up until this year, they had been prosecuting, throwing the book at a lot of these kids and, and, and taking a closer examination of what the full situation surrounding a specific threat was after they had filed the charges. This year, they decided to do the opposite. They wanted the schools, counselors, local police at the schools themselves school administrators to sort of fully examine the circumstances of the threat, let the prosecutors know, but also help collaboratively determine the best course of action for a student before getting the prosecutors fully involved and before the prosecutors may, using the heavy hand of the law, to prosecute a case. So what's the priority now? I mean, because obviously this was all done as a response to what happened and nobody wants this to happen in their schools. Who are the people that are priorities? Everyone is on the same page in terms of public safety being paramount, right? No jurisdiction wants to have a situation like Parkland 
where some kid had been making threats for a long time and nobody did anything about it. So prosecutors in Harris County and elsewhere who have sort of pulled back from the zero tolerance approach, they still want to be in the loop and informed of these threats. But their contention is that they can be more incisive about who they're going after. They want to deal with the kids who are specific about their threats, who may post something very, very specific on social media where they're targeting a specific school on a certain day, as opposed to some opaque, half-joking threat, which ends up not being anything and may divert attention away from something really serious. And so in Harris County, with the advent of these collaborative approach, where you have schools on the front end doing sort of a full analysis of the threat to student, who the student is, what their situation is at home, whether they have access to guns, and then getting prosecutors involved a little bit later in the process. The hope is that you can strike a balance between the most serious cases and those that can be handled through counseling or some sort of discipline in school or some sort of other means. Dan Frosch, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Once he started posting photos of himself with one kid and all the other mothers on the site started being like, oh, you know, like maybe we should have our kids meet too. So it ended up that they started this annual trip where he would take them to Bass Lake every summer. Now they're up to 17 kids that he's met and they're about to have their annual trip in July. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. We're going to be talking about an unconventional family. This uh, concerns a man named Tim Gullickson who began donating to a sperm bank in 1989 and he never really expected to meet any of the biological children that he might have had there. But right now he's met 17 of his kids so far, and there might be more on the horizon that he just hasn't made connections with yet. Tell us about Tim Gullickson and his family. Back in the 1980s, it was just really normal to have an anonymous donor. So like if you donated, you would never find your kids or like if you were a donor conceived kid, you weren't even told that you were donor conceived. And this really started to change when donor sperm became available to single women and to uh, lesbian couples. So obviously now you can't keep a secret from the kids. So now you have a lot more kids. There's a lot more openness around donor conception. And you have, so you have these things that spring up. First, it's a, a website called the Donor Sibling Registry. It's a website created by Wendy Kramer, who is a single woman who had a child of sperm donation. But what she really wanted to do was create a website where people could connect not only with their donor, but also with, as it's saying in the name, their siblings. So what you've had started to see is people who maybe haven't even found their donor, but have really relationships with, have siblings, like kind of all over the country. Yeah. In the case of Tim, he was, and I will say he is a little bit unusual, he was actually really interested in meeting his kids as kids. So he signed up when he first heard about this website back in, I think, 2004. At the time, there were a few other mothers on the site who had also heard about the website. I think they'd like seen him on Dr. Phil or something. They were interested, but they were like hesitant about bringing a stranger into their family, right? As like you might understand. Yeah, most people would be, exactly. But there was this one mother and one son in particular who was nine years old. His name was McKay. And he I was always really, really interested in knowing his father. He actually kept a daddy box going back for several years. So he was nine years old. And like when he was at school and he would have Father's Day and like make Father's Day cards, he was like, well, I have no one to give it to. And he started keeping this daddy box. And so when he was nine years old, his mother got on the site and she messaged him and she actually told him, your son wants to meet you. I don't want to portray this as like typical because I think if you talk to people who are donor conceived, they have a lot of different ways of thinking about whether they're donors or father or not. But for McKay, he really thought of Tim as his father and really wanted to meet him. So Tim flew down to Texas. He lives in San Francisco and they met for the first time and kind of hit it off and <laughs> all these photos with them. And once he started posting 
interesting photos of himself with one kid and all the other mothers on the site started being like, oh, you know, like maybe we should have our kids meet too. So it ended up that they started this annual trip where he would take them to Bass Lake every summer. Now they're up to 17 kids that he's met and they're about to have their annual trip in July. Everybody gets something different out of this. McKay did want a father. He wanted to meet his dad. For a lot of the other kids, though, that wasn't really the main point of it. They wanted to find their siblings. They wanted to yeah. find those other family members. And that's why I said, you know, this is a big unconventional family. Obviously, each kid had their own family, their other parents, but they kind of formed this other unit, other family unit, basically out of this. But uh, talk a little bit about that, because a lot of these other kids were looking for their siblings specifically. Yeah, exactly. I talked to one girl named Amelia, and she was actually one of the first kids that Tim met as well after McKay. Amelia told me that when she was a kid, she really desperately wanted siblings, and she would wish to the fairies, give her spare change to her mom, and say, like, I'm going to help you adopt a kid, right? Like, like very kid logic. <laughs> yeah. So her mom got on donor sibling registry, and she started meeting her siblings starting when she was 9 or 10 years old. They've been going to Bass Lake every summer, and they forged this real relationship. The kids now are all between 18 and 25. So they're kind of all in college or like about graduated from college now. And they live all over the country, but they all keep in touch on Instagram. They have an Instagram group chat that Tim is part of. And in fact, when I first asked him if I could talk to any of his donor kids, he was like, oh yeah, I'll ask my Instagram group chat. And like 11 of them replied like almost <laughs> immediately. But they also have a Snapchat group chat that's only for the kids. Talk a little bit about how the relationship is with Tim and the kids now, one of the, his daughters said, he's not really like my dad. He's more of like a funny gay uncle. The kids obviously have different perspectives. McKay thinks of him as a dad. Another kid thinks of him as an uncle. Some of like more like a friend. So he took one of his kids named Joe to Vegas for his 21st birthday. It's all like kind of different relationships. Tim, he's pretty close to some of them. He's a little bit less close to the others. As he described it, he kind of wanted to be as there as available as his donor kids wanted him to be. When he first had a conversation with one son, uh, McKay, with his mother, he remembers the phone call where she told him, your son wants to meet you. And those words really struck him. As you just mentioned, that was something he always wanted, not necessarily interested in the money. You know, he wanted to have kids and he never thought he could. So that's why he went this route, donating sperm and things like that. So we've talked about another story before where people use these services to track down family members. And it's just another sweet story of how a new family unit can be formed. And as you said, they've done this tradition now where they go to Bass Lake every year as a whole family. They rent a huge van and, you know, they get out there and have fun and all the kids love each other other and they have all these sibling rivalries and they're that new family unit. One of the things that was um, kind of really struck me in talking to the siblings and their different relationships is that, you know, uh, Tim lives in San Francisco, but his sperm went all over the country. And um, some of the, you know, some of the women who picked him were single mothers, some were lesbian couples, but there were also sometimes, uh, you know, just a, a heterosexual couple where the uh, father was infertile. Um and it's been really interesting to hear some of the kids talk about like how to navigate that, right? Like how do they have, um, how they are able to be excited to have this like whole new family of half siblings, but also like have to keep their relationship with their father. Um, in one case, one of the girls I talked to, her name was Sam. She's, uh, I think she's 20 now and in college. Um, she first met Sam, uh, sorry, she first met Tim a few years ago. And she told me she like, grew up in the Midwest, was like super conservative, had like never known anyone who was out and gay. Um, and, Sort of being around him, being around the other kids who like grew up with lesbian, mo lesbian mothers, it like made her. She actually came out as gay um, her senior year of high school, and it was something she talked to Tim about because she, she didn't have any other experience right. with this otherwise. Sarah Zhang, writer at the Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.